This is Brian Croft. Welcome to another edition of Trench Talk, the podcast of Practical Shepherding. <clears throat> I'm joined once again by Jim Sebastio, and we also have a special guest that's joining us. I'm going to let Jim introduce her in a moment for our really important topic we're going to discuss. A couple of quick things, reminders before we do that. Um, if you would go to iTunes and leave a review for us, this podcast has been helpful for you. Uh, that helps us just with feedback and knowing how we can do this better. Uh, also, if you want to donate to the ministry to help with this podcast or other things Practical Shepherding is doing, you can go to practicalshepherding.com. There's a donate button right there on the homepage. We appreciate any help that anybody has already done and would be would consider doing. Our topic today, though, is really important, and it is something that has been uh, in the media a lot. And so we're trusting this will be helpful to especially many of you who are pastors listening to this. Um, and it's the topic of the church and caring for kids well, boys and girls, even caring for women, and the issues of abuse that have been brought out even recently, and how pastors can better care for children and women too in the church, and what to look for and policies to have in place. And so we have maybe the best person we could imagine to have on this, this program to talk to us about it. I'm going to ask Jim if he will introduce her. Uh, thanks, Brian. It really is a, a privilege to have uh, Rachel Denhollander with us. Uh, I imagine that a number of you are, are tuning in because you know uh, about Rachel. Uh, you have seen her in the news reports uh, in regard to uh, her courageous stand against Larry Nasser and uh, the taking down of the biggest uh, sexual predator in sports history. And then also uh, the amazing testimony that she gave uh, at the end of that trial, her victim impact statement, uh, which went viral and seen by uh, millions of people and uh, widely praised. And then uh, shortly thereafter, um, God having given her that platform, uh, she wanted to turn her attention not only uh, to what's happening out in institutions in the world, but what sadly often happens in evangelical churches as well. Uh, for those who have been greatly helped by Rachel, um, she is seen as a, um, I, I hear her often referred to as a Deborah uh, or as an Esther, uh, that God has raised her up for such a time as this. I think for others, uh, maybe she's a bit more like Elijah, uh, a troubler in Israel, uh, but I think it's a, a trouble that some of us need to have and need to face. And um, wherever you come down on things, uh, she's going to make you, uh, help to make you a bit uncomfortable and make you think through things and face some issues you may not. Rachel, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Rachel, you've been through an awful lot, and I know you're not feeling so well today. You're dealing with some allergy issues, and you, you said you're a little bit tired. You've been through so much, and, and I know a lot of people listening today have held you up in prayer how are you doing after the the case and all your travels, all the interviews? And I know you got a big uh, schedule ahead of you as well. How are you and your family holding up? You know, we really are doing pretty well. God has been very, very gracious to give us periods of rest, to give us an excellent support system. Uh, and so I am grateful. At the same time, uh, this is a really difficult issue to be immersed in. You know, I'm constantly hearing the stories of women and men who have been abused uh, and that is a very painful reality to be constantly immersed in but it's a reality that we need to face because yeah. it is out there and as difficult it is as it is to hear someone else had to live it oh. well we are 
obviously so sorry that you you come here not just as an advocate and not just as somebody who loves people that have been abused, but you're dealing with it from personal experience and and not only uh, with the situation that so many know, but also at, at one point in a church setting as well. Yep, that is correct. I have been abused twice at two different abusers in my life. Well, obviously, our hearts break for that, and 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 we know you're not alone. Um, Rachel, a lot of ways I would love just to go through your whole story. I know a lot of it have done that, and, and hopefully even some of this is going to come forth in a book, Lord willing. Um, but there are other platforms where your story has been told. Uh, but So you're back home in Louisville now. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Rachel is married to Jacob, and uh, they have uh, three uh, wonderful, uh, beautiful, active, happy and I can attest, very chatty uh, uh, kids. Uh, they're a delight to be around. It's one of the things I was so thankful for, uh, Rachel, knowing all the pressure and all the heartache that's on you, that there is a lightness in your home. And it's such a joy to see your kids as happy as they are because you might think, oh, they could really, mom and dad have such heavy weights on them, particularly mom. And yet the Lord's helped you to raise uh, cheerful children. And then you got another little one on the way. So if that's all you had to deal with, if you were just the wife of a seminary student and if you and a mom of uh, three and a half, and, and even if you were only dealing with your own struggles uh, and your own past, that would be seemingly be enough for any of us. And yet uh, the Lord has laid upon your shoulders uh, the pain of a lot of other people. And what we want to do, what we want to try to do today is if God can help us as pastors to prevent others from knowing this pain, and then if tragically a a horrible situation happens, to help us so that we can, as best we can, uh, minister to those in pain and and make their transition to whatever degree of wholeness and wellness we can, God helping us, knowing that there are some wounds that only heaven can heal. So, I'm talking too much. You're not listening. You don't want to come, don't listen to me. So, Rachel, we want to focus uh, on the issue particularly of, of child abuse. I mean, there's, there's obviously predatory behavior that takes place in churches that can be directed toward older women and by, you know, uh, women in, the majority, in, in their majority, 18, 18 and up. There are men, pastors, youth pastors, and others that are involved in using their platform, using their authority to seduce, and that's a tragic topic for another day. But we want to particularly focus on child abuse in the church. So let me begin by asking, uh, how widespread an issue are are we talking about? I I think that's one of the things that uh, pastors and churches really don't understand well, is how widespread of an issue this is. We typically think of pedophilia as something that's that's an aberration. That's a right. that's a fringe crime, and it really isn't. If you look at the U.S. Department of Justice statistics uh, compared with the mileage in the U.S., there's an estimate of about one pedophile per square mile in the wow. U.S. The most of uh, most of sexual abuse takes place with children. The average age is between three and seven years old. Mm. Uh, so culturally, it is a massive problem, uh, but it is also a massive problem within evangelical circles. Yeah, because the Roman Catholic Church has gotten most of the news, and maybe because it's monolithic and it has a hierarchy and a structure, and evangelical churches tend to be more 
isolated, you know, individual units and not seen as a conglomerate whole. But talk to us about, because most of those listening are going to come from an evangelical background. What are we talking about here in evangelical circles? Uh, in evangelical circles, um, it is an issue that is absolutely rampant. Mm. Experts who uh, work in evangelical circles estimate that it is actually higher. The prevalence both of sexual abuse and mishandling sexual abuse is higher in okay. evangelical and Protestant circles than it is in the Catholic Church. And research does bear this out. Uh, if you do a review of the reasons that churches are typically held liable to parishioners in federal court, uh, over the last 10 years, the number one issue consistently has been mishandling sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse in the church and the mishandling of it. Uh, the exception is last year, uh, in 2016, the most recent statistics we have, property disputes narrowly edged out childhood sexual abuse. Okay. Um, wow. But for over a decade, that has been the number one reason. Um, and if you look even uh, statistically at the number of reports that Protestant organizations receive, uh, if you look at the insurance reports from the top three insurance carriers for Protestant uh, Christian organizations, they actually receive more reports of childhood sexual abuse than the Catholic insurance companies do. Uh, and that is not taking into account the fact that the Catholic Church does have uh, much more of a hierarchical structure, so they right. are better at catching those reports right. than Protestant churches are. Hmm. What would be, to try to maybe put it somewhat statistically, so somebody's listening to this and you say to them, what are the chances that you're going to have to deal with this? And so if somebody's thinking, well, I, you know, we're an evangelical Bible-believing church, we're full of godly people and repentant people, why even think through this issue? Um, why would you say to them, no, you do need to listen to this and you need to be prepared to deal with this? There are really two reasons to that. Uh, the first is because pastors are shepherds. Mm. That's their calling. That's their role. Uh, and 25 to 40 percent of the people in their congregation are sexual assault victims. As of right now, mm -hmm. 25 to 40 percent are sexual assault victims. Uh, and they're, they need help. They desperately need help. They desperately need refuge. 25 to 40 percent of our general population are sexual assault victims. They need help. They need refuge. Mm. Uh, beyond that, predators are very good at finding organizations um, that are going to be safe for them. Ann Salter is one of the premier psychologists, uh, an expert in pedophilia, and she has a very powerful quote uh, in one of her books where she said, what we can learn from what we see in churches is that predators are very good at finding safe places even if we don't recognize mm, where wow. those safe places are. How, Rachel, how worldwide of a problem is this? So the American church uh, has been on you know, in conversations recently, but and so... But can you give us a feel on how this how this problem exists in our in the states, but then also just worldwide? Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and again, the reason for that is because it is a cultural problem. It is a problem in every country. Uh, as horrific as the statistics are in the United States, uh, most other countries actually have worse statistics, mm -hmm. uh, both culturally and in their churches. Um, and so when you when you consider that 25 to 40 percent of women have been victims of sexual assault, and that's a good statistic compared to the rest of the world, that's an incredibly sobering reality. Yeah. And we know, obviously, Rachel, that 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 runs the gamut from full full blown rape to uh, molestation of a variety of kind. And would you would you include in that in your own? Because I know. Being with men, men sometimes, well, this isn't such a big problem when it's verbal or when it's 
that sort of a thing. Do you include that in that statistic? Um, no, that is specifically relating to criminal sexual assault. Wow. 25 to okay. 40% of women have yeah, been victims. not of, even included. That's amazing. Nope, it doesn't. That does not include harassment. The vast majority of women are subject to sexual harassment, right. often on an almost daily basis. Rachel, you, I can't remember where I read the story. You told us you, you were sitting in a cafe here in Louisville not that long ago with another woman discussing this very issue and had men come over and harass you while you were while you all were, were discussing this very issue. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I actually have been harassed uh, twice at coffee shops in Louisville within the last year. Once while I was counseling a victim of sexual assault uh, and once while I was sitting with, in, with my husband uh, working on our court case, there was a man who came in and, and masturbated in front of me. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, some men live, uh, you know, or I think again, men, men, we're men, Brian and I obviously men, uh, we don't have as much of an appreciation or an understanding of, of what goes on. And uh, I'm, I'm a father of three girls. Brian's a father of three girls and obviously married to, to lovely women. And um, that ought to be so much more on our, our radar and on our hearts and, um, and in our understanding that the women that we're ministering to, uh, this is a level of hurt on, on top of just, again, the general struggles of life and the pressures of a parenting and marriage and finances and all the stuff that everybody goes through. This is a level that you know, I don't imagine you have to deal with, Brian. Well, the question I was going to ask is, so I, I think back as a young pastor that I just, I didn't know a lot of, you know, just the fact that I uh, have had women in my congregation through the years that have come out having been sexually abused and other things. That was probably the most helpful way for me to begin to understand the issue is just to to see the real effects on people um and of course then um having daughters and teenage daughters and watching even teenage boys be predatorial in the way that they approach just general life and socializing uh, is quite disturbing uh a pastor's listening to this maybe a young pastor he's married maybe he's had his first child uh, he's five years in, five years or less into his, his pastorate, and he's listening to you, and he's thinking that, "Boy, this is really terrible." But I, you know, I, I don't personally have any experience with this at least yet. What kind of advice would you give to him as he needs to educate himself on the reality of this issue, but also how to be compassionate and empathetic and uh, to women who would approach him and say things have happened to them? I think education really is the key for that pastor that desires to minister well, uh, because you have to understand the damage of sexual assault before mm. you can minister well to a sexual assault victim. Mm. Uh, some of the responses that assault victims have are very counterintuitive uh, to someone who hasn't walked that path. Uh, the damage goes on a lot longer and is a lot deeper uh, than many people realize. And because victims are constantly dealing with the question of, am I safe? Uh, one misstep can be absolutely devastating you don't usually get more than one chance to minister well to a victim of sexual assault. And do you think evangelical pastors are particularly vulnerable to the mistake of thinking, well, you're saved now. Uh, everything should be okay. You, you love Jesus. You're going to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. Why does this bother you? Uh, that's a particularly male, but particularly perhaps male evangelical mistake that can be made. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that is accurate. You know, a lot of pastors would not necessarily articulate that position because when they sit down and think about it, they know better. But in practicality, when they approach a victim of sexual assault, their counseling methodology and the way they handle that abuse uh, in practicality absolutely plays out that way. 
And I think, Rachel, one of the things that makes you uh, a, a particularly wonderful advocate in this way is that you, uh, you, you know theology. You're, you're, you are uh, obviously uh, steeped in the truths of the gospel, and anybody that heard your victim impact statement and you're articulating uh, the grace of God uh, and, and the cross in light of the wrath and judgment of God I had a lot of people say that's the best theology that they'd heard in a long time uh, coming from a courtroom. Uh, And so you don't have a light, casual view of the gospel. You don't have a bumper sticker Christianity or Band-Aid view of the gospel. And so when uh, you you understand both the depths of the gospel and the reality of this pain, which I think makes you a particularly good spokesperson for helping men to realize um, don't trivialize this um, in light of truth. Yeah, you know, theology really is where the hope is. The gospel is where the hope is. Uh, and that is that is why I have such a burden for the church, because I do work with women uh, and even men on a, on a daily basis who have been through this pain. Uh, and the hope of Christ is what they need. Uh, but when those truths are misapplied uh, and they're mishandled, it pushes victims away from the real refuge that they have. And that is that is absolutely heartbreaking. Right. Rich, we want to, in a minute, move to getting uh, practical about how pastors can begin to evaluate their churches, evaluate their processes for these kinds of things. But, And I know you've talked about this in the past. I just feel like it, it would be good to address again in the context of this conversation, and that is, um, would, would you give a word to pastors about how to react when someone does come to them and say, this has happened, when so often it is, uh, it's not believed or a pastor, and well-intending many of them, I think, trying to just be careful with such an accusation, and yet they they don't realize what they do to the victim in that moment. Can you just address that? And a pastor being for the first time listening to um, what the ramifications of that is, could you give them some advice? Yeah, I think the most important thing for people to understand when they re- receive a disclosure of sexual assault uh, is that the vast majority of those disclosures are genuine. It is extraordinarily rare to have a victim disclose sexual assault and be fabricating a claim. The well-done studies have found between a 2 and 8% uh, false reporting rate. Most experts believe it's closer to the 2% rate, and the vast majority of those come in childhood uh, custody case disputes, mm-hmm. where one parent is uh, you know, fabricating an accusation to try to get custody of the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so absolute worst case scenario, there is a 92% chance that your parishioner is telling the truth. More likely, it's close to a 98% chance that your parishioner is telling the truth. When that disclosure is doubted, it immediately sends the message to the victim that it does not matter and that their voice is not heard and that they are not safe. Um, Pastors need to understand, and really anyone who receives a disclosure of sexual assault needs to understand their job is not to be the investigator. Their job is not to find out the truth. That is a role that God has given to the civil government. That is a role for police officers and detectives. The pastor's job is to shepherd. That's really helpful. Uh, Rachel, a couple of things before we get into this, um, again, some of these practical issues. One thing I want to mention and ask your your thoughts on, um, we tend to think almost exclusively in terms of girls being abused. Uh, And maybe we think boys are assaulted in the Catholic Church and girls are assaulted in the Evangelical Church. And so I think we, could you address the stats on that and what's the likelihood that it would be a girl over a boy? Um, And I just say that because in light of some of what we're going to discuss in prevention, 
a pastor and his staff may have their eyes more on protecting the little girls and not think about the boys, thinking that the boys are going to be okay. Yeah, that's absolutely a dynamic that needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, the rate of sexual assault for men is less than for women, but it's not actually that much less. Okay. It's about one in six, uh, and that is anticipated to be underreported because it is even more difficult oftentimes for a male victim to disclose than it is for a female victim. Uh, and so it really does have to be uh, really rounded towards both genders. Okay, Rachel, let's, let's talk through some of these practical issues. And, and I, have, I have three things I wanted to just ask you about. And so one is prevention and prevention policies, if, we, if you want to put it that way, and whether you as a, as a pastor and as a staff have these things written out and published. And would you, let me just ask, first of all, would you recommend that, that you have a policy written out, published, and given to every member in the church and every um, buddy that wants to join the church. Yes, absolutely. And the first reason for that is because it just requires you to think through the issue. It requires you to process and to and to put policies in place in a detailed oriented fashion that doesn't necessarily happen when you don't write it out. Uh, but the second reason for publishing that is because it gives a bright line uh, test both to predators and to your parishioners that we take this seriously. Okay. It gives them something to measure the standard by so parishioners can look at this and say, you know, we I think we have a problem here. We have something happening that's not supposed to be happening. Uh, so it gives guidance to your congregation Excellent. when they're aware of those policies. That's very helpful. Okay, so we want to talk about prevention, and then secondly, what well, I'm calling discovery slash exposure, and then a, a post-trauma ministry. I, I'm not sure what the best terminology to use here, so you can help me on that. But let's talk first of all, Rachel, um, if you were to give counsel to a church staff and they say, so they're hiring you as their expert and say, we've never really thought through what we need to do. Uh, in regard to prevention. And so let me pause here and say, of course, we recognize there are things that are going to happen outside the church that we're going to have to deal with. And by that, I mean, it's not going to happen. It may not happen in Sunday school. It may not happen on a, a youth retreat. It may not happen in the bathroom at church or in the parking lot at church, but it may involve, but it's involving the people in your church. What can we do? What's the, what are some of the things we can do to help in prevention? There are a couple different dynamics to that. I mean, the first is just the practical policies that you have in place, uh, having wise policies in place uh, where adults are not alone with children, older teens are not alone with children in any capacity, uh, where they, you know, you have an open door policy for the nursery where people can see in. Uh, so there are a lot of practical guidelines that can be put in place, practical guidelines for what happens when someone does report abuse. But I think the biggest thing that people really need to understand is it has more to do with the culture you create in your organization, not necessarily the policies. The policies are important, but the policies really are a reflection of the culture. And how well you hold to those policies is a reflection of the culture. Predators are very, very skilled manipulators. They know how to seek out places uh, that are safe for them, where abuse is not going to be understood or taken seriously. Mm. That has much more to do with your cultural attitude towards abuse and abuse victims than it has to do with the written policies that you have in place. Mm. That's good. Could you exp- uh, I'm going to just explain that a little bit. Uh, t- tell me, what do, you, what do you mean by culture? So uh, you got a thick-headed guy listening like this, like me, and you're saying, what exactly do you mean by the culture you create? Are you talking about that these are the kinds of things that are addressed and that, that you, you realize in, in teaching, preaching opportunities that you take that seriously and urging the congregation to take it seriously? Or are there other issues that you're getting at with that? 
Uh, that's a really loaded question. Uh, yes, preaching and teaching, making it clear uh, from the pulpit when there is an opportunity to do so, that these are issues that we take seriously. Uh, but a lot of it has to do in churches with your theological approach mm. to abuse, uh, with your theological approach to authority, uh, mm. to to the accountability that pastors have, to the accountability that leaders have, uh, your theological approach to forgiveness and grace and repentance, doctrines that are often misused uh, and applied Mm. in ways that allow predators uh, to continue roaming the halls of a church unchecked. Um, That's one of the dynamics that is really different in churches than you see in other institutions. Every institution has a problem with how they handle sexual assault. We see it in universities, we see it in schools and athletic organizations, and we see it in churches. Uh, But in churches, you have a very added dynamic of an ideological commitment to how sexual assault is handled. Uh, And when you have that ideological commitment to mishandling abuse, uh, it really creates a situation where predators know they can be safe. Mm. Uh, Again, Ann Salter is one of the foremost psychologists. uh, And one of the things she found when she did her research was that predators intentionally seek out uh, faith organizations, specifically Protestant and evangelical faith organizations, Mm. because of these dynamics. They are very skilled at finding places where they will be safe. Wow. I want to kind of interject at this point, because I, I bet there's some pastors listening now who, <clears throat> as they hear you talk and hear that, and some of them for the first time hearing a lot of these kinds of things, uh, and I just because I know a lot of these guys who listen, and um, and some of them are sitting there going, "Uh oh!" Like they have realized that they have not done this well in different ways, um, and they're hearing you, and they're they're already starting to evaluate and think about previous situations that maybe they wish they handled differently. Uh, can we just interject here and what kind of advice would you give them at this point um, as they're maybe even panicking a bit, realizing maybe they have not shepherded people well through this just out of ignorance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there are a couple dynamics to how that needs to be handled. Uh, if the people that they have not shepherded well are still in the congregation, there needs to be an acknowledgement and genuine repentance, mm-hmm. uh, both individually to those people and corporately. Mm-hmm. Again, to send the message to the culture in the congregation we understand we are taking this seriously uh, to show that the leaders are humble, that mm. they are able to essentially practice what they preach. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is one of the most powerful demonstrations of leadership, the most respect-worthy demonstrations of leadership. Uh, and it's also one of the most dangerous things to someone that is a predator, to see leaders who are able to repent, uh, who are able to learn and to grow. That signals an unsafe environment for a predator. That almost seems to be maybe the most important thing that would set the culture that you're talking about. Is that fair to say? Those public testimonies and and acknowledgments of, of wrong by pastors and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because again, predators rely on the dynamic of community protectionism. They rely on people in authority uh, to not recognize the signs of abuse, to circle the wagons around someone who has committed a wrong, whether that's uh, abuse itself or enabling abuse. They rely on that community protectionism. <clears throat> and when that community protectionism is removed from them by men who are humble and who are able to learn, uh, that makes an unsafe environment for a predator by default. It's Rachel, uh, boy, we could we could talk for hours about some of this. I know sometimes the pr- the predator is there an age range for a predator? Is it almost? It's almost always a male, I assume, and they don't necessarily not necessarily going to be in a leadership position, right? I mean, it can be a teenage boy in the church. It, it could be a fifty year old or seventy year old. A grandpa in the church who likes to bounce the kids on his knees and you know uh, he you know whatever the case might be so are there any ways to 
to look at it and say, okay, if it's in leadership, we need to, how do we evaluate leadership in this regard? Even uh, background checks, and a lot of people might not think about that. Should we do a background check on anybody coming in to a new hired position in the church? Uh, that this is not just that they're asked where their theology is and their use of pornography or whatever else, but also is there anything like this in your background? Are there any temptations that you've had? Have you ever given in to any of those things? Uh, So it's one thing I think with leadership, it's another question with the people you allow to come into your church and and to visit your church. Are there any warning signs or help that you can give about those dynamics?